Well, amen. What a time of worship. If you uh, come into my office ever, one day when I'm officing out of my office and not the youth prayer room, <clears throat> like currently, so this is not there, so don't say that I was dishonest with you because it will be there. But in my office, there are some pictures that I keep with me. And in those pictures, there's kind of two sets. There's some from high school, some from college. And you will find in some of those photos from high school that I am with, uh, with college students who led our small group Bible studies as when we were in high school. They were called Zill leaders, and, and there was something about them, the way in which they ministered, the way in which we watched God work in their lives and through their lives. There was an affection, uh, a, a sense of camaraderie is, is too shallow a word to describe it, but this sense of love and caring for one another, that I remember for us as high school students, we saw that and longed for that. So it was a blessing when I got to college and had the opportunity to become an RA at Dallas Baptist University because that group of RAs was just like that. It was people my own age who were driven and passionate for the Lord and for his gospel, who were participating in his ministry, who in our lives and through our lives, we were seeing and watching as God was moving and molding and, sh and, and shaping us and moving through us. And it created a sense of warmth and affection and love for each other that should be present amongst the body of Christ. Church family, there should be amongst us as a family, as God's sons and daughters who are bought in the precious blood of Christ, there should be an affection, a caring, a longing, a sense of the highest love between each and every one of us if we are part of this church family. So how do we get there? How does that take root? How do we arrive at a place where that describes in every way who we are? Hopefully it describes who we have been, but God's not done and he's moving us and molding us and shaping us. It's for sure who we want to be. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be back in the book of Philippians chapter one, Philippians chapter one, and we're going to pick up in verse three. And if you were here last week, you'll remember, we just looked at the greeting. We just look at Paul's address to this church in Philippi where he writes all the saints, including the pastors, the deacons, and the members of the church, and he reminds them who they are, that they are servants of Jesus Christ. Their lives are not their own, but Christ. They are saints in Christ Jesus, that they are actually have been declared holy and are able by the grace and power of God to live out what God calls them to. That they are children of God. They are unique and valuable. And, and he writes to them, if you'll remember, and he said, grace and peace to you. His desire being that the grace we, we, we first know in salvation, which gives us peace, would just expand more and more. And, and so as we walk through into this letter, look what he says, verse three. He says, I thank my God always in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy, in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Here's, catch what he says. He says, church in Philippi, I thank my God. I thank, present tense, I am in a constant place of praising and thanking and showing my gratitude to God every time I remember you. Church in Philippi, as I sit locked under house arrest and I think back to you, as I think of you, Every time I think of you, it drives me to actively thank God for you. 
And when I thank God for you, every time I offer my prayer, and when he says prayer there, that's a little bit of hint of what we'll look at next week. Next week, we'll look at what specifically is he praying for the church in Philippi. We'll see that next week. Sufficient for today is he is praying specific things for them, and when he prays for the church, he is filled with joy. There is a joy that wells up in his spirit. There is a joy that overflows through his heart every time He prays for this church. There is a drastic, powerful sense of thanksgiving that Paul, from the get-go, he's not just being formal or kind. There is a deep sense of thankfulness and gratitude to God for this body of believers, so much so that there is joy in praying for them. Well, why is that? Well, he tells us. He says, this is why. Here's, Here's the reasons for my thanksgiving. In view of your participation, it's an interesting little word, participation will likely be how your Bible translated. It's actually literally the word koinonia, which means fellowship. When you, when you read of the fellowship of the Spirit or in the believers were of one fellowship, it's, it's the same word. It's this idea of a group of people who are all sharing in one thing, that are, that are driven by one thing. It is a participatory fellowship. He says, the reason I am thankful for you all and filled with joy in my prayers for you is is because you are participating. There is a fellowship, a oneness between you and I because you are actually living out the gospel from the first day we met all the way until now. The gospel is not just something the church in Philippi heard and, and, and raised their hands and said, hey, we're good with that. In fact, if you trace the roots of Paul in Philippi, I'll take you to Acts chapter 16. And in Acts chapter 16, Paul comes into Philippi. There's no synagogue. So he goes down by the river. He meets a lady named Lydia, shares the gospel. Lydia says, yes, that's the truth. Comes to faith in Christ. Brings Paul and and, and, and his, his missionary partners back to her home. They go in the home and her whole household comes to faith in Christ. And then just, just days later, they're walking through the city and there is a, a slave girl who is possessed by a demon and, and Paul casts the demon out. And her owners bring accusations against Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy, brings accusations against them as, as disturbers of the peace, as promoting a false religion. So with no trial, the government in Philippi, remember Philippi being a Roman colony, a mini Rome, they throw Paul and Silas in prison, where that night there's an earthquake that throws open the prison, and the, the jailer there in the Philippian jail, fearing the loss of his life because the prisoners has escaped, is contemplating suicide when Paul says, stop, out of the dark, stop, we're all still here. And all of a sudden, this door opens, and that jailer comes to faith in Christ, and then the next day, the rest of his household, you see the beginnings of this church, the beginnings of this church uh, under strained circumstances, the being under, of this church uh, under wrongful imprisonment. Because by the way, Paul and Silas, Paul will the next day tell the government, uh, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen, and you didn't try me, and the government will get very scared, because now they risk the wrath of Rome, and so they send Paul and Silas on their way. It's a short, brief visit, and the Philippian church didn't just respond to the gospel by saying, yes, we agree, but, but they responded and said, yes, we need Christ. They, they, they believed the gospel. They accepted the gospel, but in sec- accepting the gospel, it has translated out in their lives into lives that are driven by the gospel. 
They as individuals who make up a church congregationally, collectively, they are driven. And we see stories of the Philippian church throughout scripture. We see they didn't just receive the gospel message, that, 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 that it drove them to abound in generosity. Second Corinthians chapter eight, Paul mentions the churches in Macedonia who gave not out of their abundance, but out of their lack. They didn't have much, but they gave abundantly out of nothing. That's the church in Philippi. We see later on in the book of Philippians that they, they sent Paul uh, money there in prison. We see not only that, but that, that word participation in the gospel implies that they are actively sharing the gospel to a lost and broken world around them. Paul says, I am thankful and filled with joy because you, you don't just talk the talk, you actually walk the walk. It translates over into every area of your life and has since the first day I know have met you. Well, there's a second reason. He says, and I am confident of this very thing, verse six, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it, will bring it to complete and total completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He says, the second reason that, I, that I'm filled with joy as I pray for you is because I know this, that the good work that has started in you, the, the transforming power of God through the gospel, which Paul will say in Romans, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? Because it's the power of God for salvation. That the one who started this good work in Lydia and the jeller and their households that has expanded out to reaching a city, that the one who started that work in their lives individually and corporately as a church, he'll finish it. He's not done. Though Paul's not there, though Paul has desire to go back but doesn't know if he'll ever be able to go back, though Paul is not there, the work continues because the work is not dependent upon Paul. It's not Paul's gospel. It's not Paul's work. It's God's. And God will be faithful to finish that work. And this drives Paul in this sense of joy and his thanksgiving for this church that is walking well with Christ. And he says, it's only right, it's only righteous, correct for me to feel this way about you all. Because I have you in my heart since in both my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, that is in the, the actual defending what the gospel says, the, the, the proving and showing that it's true to, to a lost world, both one-on-one -on -one in personal evangelism and for Paul in front of the government, that even in that, you are partakers, you are sharers of that fellowship of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long with the affection of Christ Jesus. And these words here on tense, Paul says that, that I have this deep internal, in, in the very core of my being, sense of affection, of compassion, of longing. And it's not just mine, it is the very affection, the love, the compassion, the mercy of Christ for you. That's a powerful statement, church family. That's a powerful statement for Paul to write this church from 800 miles away, sitting in, sitting in uh, under house arrest, chained to a, a Roman guard saying, church family, when I think of you, I, I pray for you and I am filled with joy when I pray for you because you are living out the gospel well. And the one who started that work in you, he's gonna bring it to completion. And there's this affection that I have for you in light of that, and it's not my affection, it is the longing, it is the passion, it is the very love of Christ in my heart for you all. You can get the sense right off the bat, church family, that Paul, there is a deep bond and connection between Paul and this church. 
So the question becomes to you and I today, how does that translate over to us? How does that translate over to us in this place? Well, church family, if we are going to be a gospel-driven church, the gospel demands that we pray for one another with thanksgiving and, and have some grace on the slides because I totally changed the slides on them this morning and now I'm changing them back. So if the slides don't make sense, that's my fault, not the booth, okay? You thank them afterwards because without them, uh, things would be bad. There should be a sense of prayer, of thankful prayer. If we are a church family and we are looking at this passage and to belong to a church family means we should be praying for one another. And when we pray for one another, those prayers should be driven with thanksgiving and gratitude to the Lord. And as we thank the Lord for our church family, there should be a joy that springs up in our hearts as we pray for one another. Here's the question, church family. It's, it's not a hard application. Do you and I pray for each other? Do we pray for those needs when we get the, 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 the church prayer email weekly? Do we pray for those needs that come up in our grow groups? Are we aware of those things? Do we pray for the leadership in our church, for each other in our church? And here's what's interesting about Paul's statement. Paul's statement is not these rose-colored glasses that go, well, I just thank the Lord for the church in Philippi because there's nothing they ever do wrong. That's not what he says. Because later on in the, in the letter, he's going to go on to correct some things that are, that are not the way they should be. No, his thankfulness, the thankfulness for this church is in the face of both the good and the ugly. The joy that wells up in his heart is not only because the church subjectively by their own, their own uh, by the grace of God and their own decision to be obedient is walking well, the joy is knowing that even if the church were to struggle, they are God's church. And he started a work, he won't quit his work, in fact, he will finish his work. So church family, when you and I, when we think of praying for one another, how easy it is to get caught in whatever the latest church drama is. Whether that's to we switch the coffee from this brand to this brand, or whether or not that classroom got their carpets clean but this classroom didn't, or who knows what actual things that matter come up. You and I should be on our knees in thanksgiving prayer for one another if for no other reason than this, then when you and I look around this room, if you and I have in fact come to faith, saving faith in Christ Jesus by grace, through, expressed through repentance and faith, then in every one of us in this room, if that is true, God has started a work and he will finish that work. And that work is not just in our lives only, but is in our lives together if we are a church family. We should pray thankfully for each other. But not just that. If we're going to pray thankfully for each other, understand this. If we're going to be a gospel-driven church, then that's going to mean you and I need to faithfully take up the ministry God's entrusted to us, and we need to actually participate in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You see, Paul's, part of Paul's thanksgiving is because the church in Philippi doesn't just say the right things. They don't just ascribe to the right doctrine. They live out Christ in their lives. And we see this translate over. They remember to care for each other. Paul's 800 miles away. Do you know how slow snail mail traveled back then? It's a four-month journey between the two cities. 
Yet when they heard, man, they sent Epaphroditus, as we'll see later, they sent money, they thought to pray for him, they thought to care for him. The church in Philippi had never met the church in Jerusalem, but they raised money to send to help them with food. Church family means we remember one another. We remember, Hebrews 13, 3, remember those who are in chains, how? As though in chains with them. We remember persecuted brothers and sisters around the world we've never met as if we are there with them. We remember each other, Galatians 6. Do good to one another, especially to those in the household of faith. We find ways to serve one another. We we, we choose to be faithful to give, to take a meal to someone, to check on someone in the hospital, to pray with someone. To, to, to like last week when we watched a flood of students praying over a friend at the altar, we remember and care for each other. We grieve with those who grieve. We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We celebrate with those who celebrate. We remember one another. And we give of ourselves and everything of ourselves. That includes time. And yes, that includes finances. Faithfully as unto the Lord. We remember each other. We remember our leaders. And I'm just going to give you a really... I uh, give you a plug. They, 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 this church cared for Paul. Paul was a leader in their church. They cared for him. They didn't just view him as the one doing all the ministry. They saw him as someone they followed in ministry. Church, I'm going to give you a real practical application you could put into place today. I told the deacons this Monday night, I don't know who decides these things, but I know it's been a thing for a while. In October is National Pastor Appreciation Month. Now, I am not telling you to appreciate me. You've already gone above and beyond. What I am telling you is this. You got four other men on this staff who serve in the role as ministers, who serve faithfully, who've walked through a pastor transition, who are now walking with a new pastor. Church family, find a way to walk up to one of them and encourage them. If they've touched your life, write them a note and tell them the way God's used them in your life. Maybe take one of them out to a meal. Maybe give them a gift card. Maybe offer to babysit their kids for free so they can go on a date night with their wife. I don't know how the Spirit, but I am telling you this, if we're going to be a church that actively participates in the gospel, we're a church that remembers and cares for each other, both the person to our right and the leaders in the church. And you've got a great opportunity this month to do so as a church family, and I want to encourage you to do so. But it's not just remembering each other. It means we suffer for the gospel for each other. Did you catch that? Back in verse 7, he says, you are partakers, you are fellow sharers in the defense and confirmation of the gospel in my imprisonment. Now, they're not in prison in Rome with him, but if the church in Philippi is faithfully walking with Christ, as Paul seems to imply, you can be assured that living in the kind of Roman uh, patriotic city of Philippi, they would face oppression and suffering for standing for the truth. And they stood for the truth. To, To participate in the gospel doesn't just mean that we go, man, the gospel, that feels good, we like that. It means we actually have to use our minds and reason, and think, and stand, and offer reasons why what we believe about Christ is true, not because we say it's true, but because it is reflective of the one who is true. And if he is true, and his gospel is true, then there are logical and right reasons we can present to a world that is in desperate need of truth. It doesn't just mean we, 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 we suffer with the gospel. It means, church family, at its core, We, as individual followers of Christ, together as a family of Christ, we minister to the gospel with each other. It means you and I both, not you or I, not I or you, you and I have a sovereign calling from God to share the gospel. 
I will not be the one to reach all of Pflugerville. God will be the one to reach Pflugerville through us, his church. And just, just by the way, just in case you haven't thought, I've done doing some digging. We, First Baptist Church Pflugerville, have been called to take the gospel everywhere, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. We should be praying for open doors. We should be sharing the gospel as the normal outflow of lives that have been captured by the gospel. Not just because we have an evangelism emphasis. In fact, when Mimi and Papa were here the other day, Mimi looked and said, you know, the, the, the greatest, most evangelistic church we were ever at was the one church we never had an evangelism program. People just shared the gospel because they loved Jesus and it was the right thing to do. In First Baptist Church, Pflugerville, we have, probably over this, but I tried to give round numbers, 70,000 people living in our city. If you do the stats based on how many in America identify as an evangelical Protestant, it's only 25%. That means in our city, there's only 17,000 believers. But if we want to be a little bit more specific, let's try to tie it in a little bit lower to maybe try to go, well, who's actually born again? That's going to take you down to maybe 6,000 believers out of 70,000 living in our city. If you go to the greater Austin metro area, there's almost 2,300,000 people living in the greater Austin area which means by those same stats, there's only somewhere between two and 500,000 who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The chances you and I have every day bumping into people, people you work with, people you see regularly, people who coach your children in a sports, people who, uh, people who you, you, you um, take your clothes to the cleaners. I mean, just any common everyday occurrence, chances are you are talking to someone who has no hope. And could God be giving you the open door to reach them? Oh, church family, that we would see God add to our numbers with new believers. And if we're going to be a gospel-driven church, it means we have to take the gospel. That's what it means here in verse 5. But it's not just that. Look at this. If we're going to be a gospel-driven church, then it means we are confident and surrendered to the work of God in our lives. Do you see that? For I am confident of this very thing. I am confident there is a sureness that God's work is in our lives and he will bring it to completion. Well, what is God's work, church family? What is God actually about? See, here's where sometimes as the American church, we have dropped the ball. Now, we're not wrong, but we stop short. We say, hey, why do I need to be saved? Well, you need to be saved so you can be forgiven of your sins. Now, I'm not trying to be inflammatory, church family, but if you read scripture, the primary focus of the gospel is not to get you forgiven of your sins. It's to reconcile you to God. And in order for that to happen, you must be forgiven of your sins. But when we say it's just, hey, you need to be saved from your sin, here's what that sounds like. You've got this bad ledger, God will take it away, and then great, now, now it's your life. No, the gospel doesn't just save us from our sins, it reconciles us to Christ, God's work in our lives. It says we are his masterpiece, Ephesians 2.10, that he is artfully designed to live out good works that he has laid out for us. It says in Romans 8.28, God causes all things, good, bad, ugly, all things, to work together for good, the good being his good in our lives. And what is that good? Well, it says in verse 29, it is to take you and I and to conform every last part of our being into the image of Jesus Christ. 
What is the good work that God has started in you and God has started in me? It is the work of conforming us into the image of Christ. It is the work of of making us as an individual and as a people, a holy people, a royal priesthood, a chosen nation for his possession, 1 Peter 2. This is God's work in our life. God will take all circumstances. He will take circumstances that are high and circumstances that are low. He will raise and he will humble. He will take all moments. He will take everything in our lives, both things he causes directly or things he allows to happen. He will take it all and conform us into the image of his son, period. Which means when you walk through a season, maybe you're a student and you've gone and you've had a moment with God where you've encountered him at camp or at D-Now or something and all of a sudden you walk through a season where you go, I'm trying to have quiet times, I'm trying to spend time with the Lord, but it just seems like he's silent, it just seems like he's not talking and God, what are you doing? You can be confident that if God started the work in you, God is working whether or not you see it or don't. And church family, that's not just an example for the students, that's an example for all of us. How many of us have struggled with the Lord when we go, Lord, I just don't see what you're doing. I don't know what you're up to. I can't, and all of a sudden, the Lord's work in our lives is totally and completely subjected to what we can see and know. Instead of a surety, a confidence, an absolute knowing that if God started the work in our lives at the moment of salvation, he is going to finish it. And I don't know if that finds you today on a spiritual mountaintop where you go, man, just my, I'm walking with the Lord. Oh, it's amazing. Or that that finds you in a deep, dark, lonely, dry, hard place. But if you are in Christ Jesus, there is a joy that can well up in your heart and mind from the simple knowledge and truth that regardless of circumstance, regardless of, of how well you came into today walking with the Lord or not, if the Lord started the work within you, he will finish it. And church family, if we're going to be a gospel-driven church, we're gonna have to be a church that doesn't just talk the gospel, but lives the gospel. And in doing that, if if we're gonna be faithful to live the gospel, it's gonna flow out of a confidence, a surety, that he who started the work in us will finish it. So you know what you and I's response is? It's one, to be confident, but it's this too, that as God works out his work in our lives, that we surrender and yield to it. And by the way, that work, That work is not just individual for you and I's life individually. That work is for us as a church family as well. God started to work here in 1972 when he moved in the hearts of First Baptist Round Rock to plant a congregation in a small community called Pflugerville. God started to continue to work here in 1976 when that church constituted and became Pflugerville Baptist Church. And if I remember right from the the page I read, in 1979 that became First Baptist Church Pflugerville. And along the way, somewhere around 1990, God continued that work through Pastor Steve. And I got news for you, church family. That same work God started, he's still doing and has more to do till Jesus comes back. And we better be sure of that so that our eyes are looking to Christ walking forward and not looking at our memories, trying to walk backwards.
God has work in us and through us he wants to do. And if we are a gospel-driven church, we will surrender to it. And here's what I am convinced from this passage as we come to the end. I asked you the question at the beginning. How does this kind of affection that we see from Paul, I mean, he says that he longs from the innermost part of his being with the deepest level of passion, the affection of Christ for this church. How can we be a church where we look and say, hey, you want me, let me tell you about my church, friend. It's a church where we long for each other with the affection of Christ. You can sense it when we gather in the building. You can sense it when we're apart. There is a deep love and affection, by the way, for all in the family of First Baptist Pflugerville, not just the ones that we most easily gravitate to. Because Paul, by the way, in his own passage, he's used the word all plurally eight times. All. Here's what I'm convinced. If we're going to be a church where that kind of affection exists, it's because we are a church who participates in the gospel, confident that he will finish his good work in us, driven in prayer to the Lord with thanksgiving. When those things happen, we will have the affection of Christ for each other. So church family, the choice about having that affection, it sits in you and I's hearts as individuals and then for our hearts corporately today. Will we be a gospel-driven church? Will we be people-driven, not just to talk about how the gospel saves, but to live out that the gospel saves, confident, assured, and surrendered to the Lord's work in and through our lives, thankfully praying for each other with joy, filled with a right longing and affection. I hope and pray so, and I hope you do too. Pray with me. Father, you have not called us. You did not save us to be a, uh, a country club of people who talk about you, who, 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 who share casual conversation about you. God, you have called us, bought us with your precious blood, which we, which we will remember in the Lord's Supper today. You have purchased us to be your own sons and daughters, saints and servants, surrendered and yielded to you. And Lord, you and you alone know what you have in store for our lives individually, for our church collectively. And Lord, really, it's not even our church, it's your church. We're your family, we're your body. And Lord, that we would be about your work, your will, your ways with such an affection for each other. That just like all of us who were younger looked in on that and said, man, I would love to be a part of a people like that. That people from the outside would look in and say, I would love to be a part of a people like that. And that we'd be able to say, well, one, do you know the Lord? If not, let us introduce you. Oh, you, you do know the Lord. Well, let us welcome you. So Holy Spirit, as you move in and through our hearts today, may you find us faithful to respond in this time. It's in your name we pray, Jesus.